0: Hi, this is John Shuck, and today's topic is morality, specifically the new morality. My guest is Eden Collinsworth. She's the author of Behaving Badly: The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business.
1: The level of empathy decreases when there's the, there's a, you know, there's a financial cost, and we, we're more likely to behave. Um, you know, more altruistically in a, in a more gracious way if it doesn't impact your your own personal um, you know um, wealth or, or your income or your paycheck um, and, and that's, I'm afraid that's human nature
0: So how do we decide what is right and wrong and how do people continue to draw moral lines even as things are complex and changing Next on Progressive Spirit Stay with us Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Progressive Spirit. Progressivespirit.net. I'm John Sche.
1: Many times now in the last year, certainly since the election, I've been on the uh, subway in New York, and, and to my horror, I you know, you are hearing racial, you know, there's confrontation and racial slurs and you know i mean new york people are always from some other place so this is all fairly recent and and it's not just in america new york it's elsewhere where you you know you get you're standing cheek by jowl and and you lash out at somebody who's wearing a headscarf or whatever and um so this sign read it was very simple it was two words in a comma and two more words and it was not them only us And what that did was not only galvanize people, but it held them to moral account. So they were going to get on that crowded subway and they were going to think twice about lashing out at somebody who was Muslim or, you know, from some other place.
0: My guest is Eden Collinsworth. She's a former media executive and business consultant. She was formerly of Arbor House Publishing Company, founder of the L.A.-based monthly magazine Buzz, before becoming a vice president at Hearst Corporation. She wrote a best-selling book in China for Chinese business people on Western deportment, and uh, she launched Collinsworth and Associates, a Beijing-based consulting firm which specializes in intercultural communication. And she is in South Carolina. She's on the road talking about uh, in the United States, talking about her book. She lives in London, and she's with me via Skype. Uh, welcome, Eden Collinsworth, Thank to Progressive Thank Spirit. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
0: You know, you begin your book with uh, a conversation about proper behavior with a story, appropriately, I think, about your mother. So. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell that story and how that story uh, kind of illustrates the change generationally in, uh, about yes, how we look at morality? Yes. Well,
1: I think, frankly, it, it's uh, the, the other day somebody had suggested that their grandmother was rolling in their graves given the, um, the lack of moral direction. And I suggested to her that, in fact, it was probably a more recent generation as well. Um, and my mother was um, – was European and a very old guard in her values, and um, and so um, you know I think what was what is interesting to step back. I am now a parent of a young man, um, and it seems to me that in in my generation um, we were still um, our moral sense was still um, very much in, influenced or instilled by our parents. And although I consider my, um, my son to be utterly decent, um, his morality has been not so much instilled by me as his parent, but um, shaped by these profound changes that have occurred during the course of his life. Um, relatively short life. Um, Still, they're they're very impactful um, changes. And um, so my mother felt that um, morality was very much a a rule book. And some parts of that rule book were kind of enshrined as good behavior. Um, Some parts were implicit. um, But, you know, it was very apparent when somebody behaved outside of those parameters. And that was considered to be bad and and possibly immoral behavior. And now it seems to me that those those borders are extremely porous. Um, But she felt very strongly that, in fact, there was a right way and a wrong way of behaving. And to a large degree, my father um, did as well, although he came from a different background. He was a southerner. Um, He was a successful businessman. And he, regardless of what kind of business he was doing at any given time, he felt very strongly that his handshake was his was his bond, bond. and um, that didn't prevent him from becoming successful. And I and I suspect that, you know, if he brought that same uh, expectation to doing business um, these days, in fact, he he would be at a dis a distinct disadvantage. So. You know, it's it's it certainly um, morality has changed, or, or the the concept of morality or moral values have changed since my um, my parents' time, and certainly for my grandparents' time. And I think that that's probably true with all of us.
0: And that is uh, the quest of your book, Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex and Business, is uh, to describe this this change. How did you dis- decide to investigate uh, morality and, and to what ends of the earth did you go to discover the answer?
1: <laughs> yes, well, I took a very circuitous route. I mean, you were describing my background and, and it, it sounds precisely what it is, which is extremely varied. And um, I was in my 20s. I was a book publisher in New York, and then I moved to L.A. in my 30s to launch a magazine. I came back to New York to become um, a, a, a corporate executive at the Hearst Corporation. I left for a period of time um, and spent uh, – actually, I commuted to Paris at one point because my son was – has gone through the French system, and, and I thought I'd give myself a break between having sold the magazine and, and doing whatever was next, but I had a, an offer I, I couldn't refuse, and so, um, and then I took a position very unexpectedly as the chief of staff of a global think tank, and that placed me in um both in New York and in Brussels, but the offices were also in Moscow and Washington, and I did a tremendous amount of work in China. And I did that for five years. It was fascinating, but absolutely exhausting, because the the institute was focused on a remit that had to do with security issues. So it was weapons of mass destruction, cybersecurity, and so on and so forth, very serious issues. And, uh, you know, I was about 72 hours ahead of the news cycle, um, which is fascinating, but absolutely exhausting. It was really uh, relentless. And so I did that for five years, and I decided to um, to leave that post and move to China to write a book about Western business practices, specifically for the Chinese. And this was the result actually of going in and out of China over the period. Of the 30 years that I've just uh, that have kind of unspooled in terms of my career, and in various capacities, and it seemed to me that there was a there would be a real appetite for Chinese business people to better understand Western um, deportment, uh, not because frankly they want to be more like the West, but because. Uh, they saw it as a financial um, advantage to understand how 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 to uh, best interact with Western business people, and so I, um, I because I had, you know, a, a history in book publishing, I was able to work very specifically with a Chinese, um, a, a publisher, and in in China, uh, uh, all of the media is is state controlled, and most of it is state owned. Um, and so I wrote this book um, in in conjunction or, or, or with, or in collaboration with, a, with a Chinese book publisher, and it and it was censored in the most bizarre way. It was very kind of Orwellian because it wasn't anything in particular. It was one word um, that the censor pulled up, and it, it was the word Muslim. But it was not in any provocative way that I referred to this, uh, you know, that this word was employed. So I stayed in China slightly longer than I thought I would. And I and I became a consultant um, and and did work in, in China. The book came out and to my dismay became an enormous bestseller. And this is a rather roundabout way of answering your question. But the point is that during the period of time that I lived in China, rather than kind of moving in and out of it on business, it became very apparent to me that my moral reference points were completely different. And I was working from, you know, a kind of a Judeo-Christian sense of fairness and right and wrong, black and white. And, um, and the, the Chinese have no you know what i would call homegrown religion they buddhism was an import from india they worship ancestors and if they follow anything it's more philosophical um you know they're more philosophical beliefs and um and so uh, they are operate from a confucian based um uh mentality or philosophy and and it was for me incredibly um frustrating because um you know, with something as direct as as entering into a contractual agreement. In the West, you believe that a contract is, in fact, the the culmination of a dialogue, and then it reflects the agreement that you, you have come to. And with the Chinese, it really is kind of the continuation of the dialogue rather than codifying the terms. And so um, I started to think about that kind of very... Sobering, you know, fact that the Chinese—if you look at the world's population—are are one in five people, and so here was this enormous um, uh, nation with you know 1.3 uh, billion people, and they they simply weren't thinking like me in any sense of the word, and I started to then reflect on whether my those what I call kind of the old guard guard sense of morality, whether that in fact was even applicable in my own country, that, that it seemed to me that it was becoming less and less germane in America. And so I thought that I would explore that. Um and that is how I came to the the decision to, to then to write about it. Um I, I must say that I'm not a I'm not an ethicist and I'm not a social scientist. I don't have advanced degrees in this field. And so for me, it was a a personal exploration. And I, I, I I hope that I very much hope that I take the reader along with me, because they're kind of fundamental issues, I think, that we all face.
0: If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with Eden Collinsworth. Uh, she's the author of Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex and Business, just talking about how this process of discovering uh, what morality might be. Uh, you mentioned um, the the Chinese philosophy of Confucianism. Well, that's certainly mm-hmm. traditional, too. And part of the... the I'm wondering if within China, if also morality is changing, but then you also said in your book that it's really highly censored on what the Chinese people get from the West.
1: Well, you know, it's not censored in the way that we think it it, it, it is. Um, you know, we, we, as not surprisingly, all of us have a prejudice uh, and, and believe what we want to believe. Um, and and there, the this, they are highly censored, but in a very specific way. So it's not necessarily uh, you know, the fear of getting information from um outside of China. It is the concern that uh, the internet will become a virtual meeting place from which to organize. And so, yes, it's it's frankly more censored now under President Xi than it was when I was there five six years ago. Um, that said, there, you know, what what's really quite interesting is that some thirty years ago, when I first uh, with my first trip to to China. Um, you know, I took the bullet train in from the airport, this was Shanghai, and so you know, there I was being hurled ahead at you know, over 300 miles an hour, and it frankly took just as long to slow the train down as it did the duration of, of the trip, and as the train was slowing down, I looked out the window, and what I saw was staggering, and it was, the, it was peasants in a rice field, and many of them were on cell phones. And to me, that was that was the first indication um, that uh, that China was, in fact, moving ahead at this incredible pace. And what happened was they they simply uh, avoided any pitfalls when it came came to cable um, uh, in terms of the internet and went immediately to to satellite. And so they are they are very very sophisticated in terms of their um, Technological outreach, um, but you know they're also completely determined to some degree. Uh, when it comes to most especially the Western values of uh, civil liberties and and Western uh, process of justice, uh, they, that that certainly is is discouraged and 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 yes, uh, censored in a in a sense. That, however, that does not make them. Any less or more moral than Westerners, it makes them, you know, uh, continue with a, a culture that, frankly, is thousands of years older than our own. And and uh, I think probably the most um, illustrious uh, example of how they think, which is very different, is reflected in their in their written uh, in the written Chinese. And so I, I can't claim you know, to to speak or write Chinese. My son, however, does. Um, And he was telling me at one point he had to learn, you know, the old Mandarin, which is slightly more elaborate. Um, And in the old Mandarin, the character for the word black in it has a subcharacter for the word white, uh, the color white. And so they operate very comfortably and literally in the gray area, whereas I, as a Westerner, most especially with my background, I am very results oriented. I like everything orderly. And, um, you know, I think that there's a, a very definite white and black in terms of right and wrong. They feel that there are many ways of being right and quite honestly, not many ways of being wrong.
0: You mentioned uh, more and less moral. What Maybe just some definitions and, and uh, maybe that's the, that's the whole point of the book. But uh, what is morality and what what does it mean to be moral? and how do you define it? Is, is should we be? and is there even um, such a thing as should?
1: Well, I mean, you know, quite honestly, I thought that when I before I started to write the book, the, the logical place to start would be with the definition of the word. And so um, the definition of morals, which is, uh, you know, is, is comes from the Latin mores, is fundamentally um, a, a, what, what you expect of yourself. In other words, it's a set of personal beliefs. And ethics is different. Um, and we sometimes mix the two words up. Ethics has to do with the what, what, what your society, your particular society, at a given time defines as a certain level of behavior, what, what's expected of you. And, and also it, it, there are sanctions and there are rewards and there are punishments if you operate outside of those uh, that parameter. So many times, um, you know, ethics and, and morality comes into a direct Conflict, so to speak. So you know, it, it uh, ethically speaking, a lawyer in in America, at any rate, is obliged to defend uh, his or her client to the best of his or her ability, d- despite the fact, or regardless of whether um that person has off- offends the moral values of of the lawyer. So um, the, the, and this is the the what makes it confusing, frankly, for people. You know my age, who have grown up with a with a with a very distinct set of what is believed is believed to be right and wrong. That that it's that the subtlety occurs in the definition in a period of time within a a society. So here we are in in the history of the world. We have never been so connected, so interconnected, and yet the fact remains that. People operate within their cultural silos at a given time, so that is why you know you're just kind of staggered that you know we here we are you know in in 2017 and people belong belonging to a, a certain culture elsewhere, even in your own country. Frankly, I mean, we've never been so uh, polarized. They, they simply are operating with a different set of ethical values, and 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 so it gets. It, frankly, it gets even more baffling in terms of humor be, human behavior. But I think, you know, people behave the way people behave, and what what calls them into a, a account is what the society expects of that person. And then, you know, more internally, it's what you expect of yourself. And I always think of it as, you know, morality is. You telling yourself, well, I shouldn't do this, even though it could be legal or acceptable, you know, in a larger scheme of thing, it's you setting your own um, parameters.
0: Yeah, you talked about it's kind of that morality is that in between part where there's something that could be done. And but I can't cross that line. And somewhere in there is that uh, individual sense of of moral direction or moral compass.
1: Yes, that's true. But, you know, a, a very interesting example of that. You know, what I did was I approached the subject uh, kind of thematically. So, and and that obviously is evidenced by the subtitle, uh, where I concentrated on politics, uh, you know, sex, and and business primarily. But within under those categories, there were various chapters, um, and I deliberately chose somebody to interview. Uh, for each chapter, who was kind of an u- unexpected example of the issue. So, what was really interesting for me um, was uh, the interview I had with a with a British CEO of of an enormous, um, you know, possibly one of the largest, um, certainly Japanese companies. Uh, um, this was Olympus, uh, one of the major international corporations, and he. Um, he, he worked his way up through the ranks. So very unusual that the Japanese actually uh, then assigned the role of CEO to an outsider. Um, but in fact, um, it, it was important to the board because they felt that a change of direction had to occur within the corporation. And it's always easier for uh, somebody not Japanese, in fact, to implement that change and see it through. So this gentleman who was at this corporation for some 30 years, he wasn't unfamiliar with it. It it was, you know, uh, what he did uh, without a break uh, or or any other job for the better part of his his career. So as soon as he became the CEO, he was then uh, asked for certain financials. He realized to his complete shock that there was, uh, you know, that a, a multi-million dollar Um, You know, fraudulent, uh, you know, entry had simply been passed from one CEO to the next. It had gone through three CEOs. And um, this was never addressed, much less corrected. And the, the point is that as long as it wasn't addressed, it wouldn't have an impact on the bottom line. And um, so it was this kind of, you know, uh, secondary reality that continued to move forward. And he brought it to the board um, and the the chairman um, fired him. So – and and here he had done the right thing he he had he did the responsible thing but what he then also did was to insist that you know the chairman step down so but and so how he handled it was not entirely worldly because frankly from from a from the japanese perspective um, the the immorality was then uh, disabling the company because as a result of bringing this um, to the forefront, uh, they had to declare the loss. And as a result of the loss, people lost their jobs because they had to cut back. They had to find savings. And so they did it by, by, by letting people go. So he was vilified <laughs> you know, for, in fact, being disloyal to the company. And that is very specific to that culture. So, um, you know, there you have a perfect example of how he thought he was doing the right thing in the Western sense. And they thought that, in fact, he was doing very much the wrong thing and and the immoral thing, certainly the irresponsible thing, by... Um, by forcing an issue that then would require the firing of people, he was not loyal to the company, um, and and so that they felt that that in fact was a, an act of immorality. So you know, it's everything is relative. <laughs>
0: Everything is relative. Uh, you quote Oscar Wilde at some point that uh, uh, morality is what uh, uh, what is it that other uh, that you that you find <laughs> distasteful, right? That another person's morality yes, is something. Yes, yes.
1: Well, so we, well, I mean, we fall back on our our, our own personalities, and uh-huh. and he was it was always very. He was a wonderful wordsmith, and he simply said that morality is the dislike you have for people you don't agree with, and yes. that's probably to a degree true. But in, in this. With this particular example, it had very far-reaching consequences.
0: Uh, absolutely, and it also, is a sense, in which uh, morality, as we think about it, uh, uh, is also very, is rather unconscious, and it also refers to how we make a living. Um, yes, it's in our I our interests that we often don't know.
1: I think that's absolutely true. I think that you know, if you look at the seven deadly sins, which is a kind of blueprint of really bad behavior. (laughs) And one of them is greed, of course. And, and quite honestly, if you think of it in a literal sense, and you see, you see what's transpired, most especially in the last 30 years, you know, greed, many people believe that greed is the engine for capitalism, because you, you know, it's all about increasing the profit margin. Um, and, um, the one thing that it became, as I moved my way across the, you know, it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in China, you know, in France, in the US, it, it just seems to me that people around money. you know, usually are, you're usually disappointed in terms of how they behave around money. And you, you can, you know, you can think back to your family members, your friends, you can look at the Panama Papers, which, you know, it wasn't illegal, but certainly it was immoral. They were outwitting, they were trying to outwit, uh, you know, the tax uh, system. Um, And, and if you looked at the The people involved. It was like the United Nations. I mean, there was you know somebody from Greenland. It was you know there was the members of President Xi's family in China. There were countless Americans. There were you know British. And so I I, you know I looked into some research and the empirical information. If you look at you know how people behave around money, and um, there's no doubt that the level of empathy decreases when there's the there's a you know there's a financial cost and we are more likely to behave um you know more altruistically in in a more gracious way if it doesn't impact your your own personal um you know um wealth or or your income or your paycheck um and and that's i'm afraid that's human nature
0: My guest on Progressive Spirit is Eden Collinsworth. She's the author of Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business. I'm John Schach. Stay with us. We continue the conversation after the break. Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business, is the book we're discussing. The author is Eden Collinsworth, and she's talking with me via Skype. This is Progressive Spirit. Uh, two questions. One, what impact, what, what just kind of kind of puts you in a tailspin most of your stories, if that could be the right word, of, of your morality? What challenged a bit of that? Uh, that one, and then it, was there a story in there that you found also, well, rather inspiring about the human condition?
1: Well I must tell you that the, the the most difficult chapter for me and the most compelling chapter which speaks on both of those points was an interview I had with a man who had murdered two people. Yeah. And just just to frame this in perspective um in the UK, unlike America, you you know when you after you serve your your sentence for whatever your you know for whatever crime, the their philosophy and their attitude is that you start afresh. You you have the opportunity. You've paid your dues, and you have the opportunity to start anew. Um, so, also, it's extremely difficult to find out the specifics of what. Why somebody is in prison, uh, you know, uh, and um you know what what specifically transpired? and so um what what happened uh, in in this spe- in this regard, in terms of my my own exploration, is that I uh, sent emails out to various people, some people I knew, some people I didn't, uh, because I wanted to speak to somebody. I, it the crime didn't matter but I, I wanted to speak to somebody who obviously had done something so undeniably wrong and and, and in my mind immoral um, and and I one person then sent me to another and eventually um I I had um, a correspondence with this man who did not give me his birth name and I had no idea I had, I understood that he he had murdered two people, but I had no idea uh, of the circumstances. And because, and this was my prejudice, this was fascinating, um, you know, to, to better understand myself. I, I had to look back and see that initially I thought because he was he expressed himself a certain way. He was very dignified and uh, about it and quite articulate. He didn't go into any details, but just by the, 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 you know, the tenure of his communication with me, I thought that he had to be, it had to have been a, a, a murder of passion, that he came home, he found his wife with a lover or, you know, whatever, and then he killed them both. Because I couldn't imagine anybody who was this eloquent um, and and actually reserved in his correspondence was you know somebody who murdered a different way. In other words, I had it in my mind that he murdered a certain way for a certain reason. Well, in fact, it was completely the opposite. I, I didn't I didn't know this until in fact <laughs> the day before he he arrived to, to at my flat. By the way, um, you know, uh, and I was the only one there. I, I needed to record the. The the, the the discussion. And I needed a quiet place, a private quiet place. And so I had invited other people to my flat. And I thought, well, there's no reason why I, I had to, I, I felt I, it was my obli- moral obligation to extend, you know, the benefit of the doubt and goodwill. And so there was no reason for me to try to think of another place to interview him. At any rate, he, um, w- this was a man who, had absolutely no um i mean, his was such a brutal childhood. and he immediately made clear to me that this didn't justify the murders. He murdered for money. He burglarized and 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 one person came home uh, um, you know, and they he had an accomplice, and they they were caught off guard, and they they killed this man. and another person, um, you know, they killed in a park. It was all for it was, you know, it was basically for money. And um, he made it very clear that nothing justified what he had done. But his decisions thereafter made him a moral agent in a way that I that I couldn't have imagined. And and what happened um, to make his story as short as possible? He Uh, without taking away from it he went through the court he ran off when he was eight years old his father his mother was killed his father was a violent drunk who beat him he he ran off at eight and he began to steal at eight and that's all he knew and and not surprisingly he then as he got older he then you know became slightly more sophisticated about how he he stole and he began to burglarize apartments and um never as a result of these two deaths did anyone suspect it was this man he was you know kind of off the grid and so um you know he he, he was not pinned to either of these of these murders. He did escape. He decided to leave the country and he went to France and he joined the foreign legion, which is when you can absolutely disappear. You get a new, if you so wish, a new identity. And the point point that is important to acknowledge here is that during the course of his four or five years in the foreign legion, he became a great leader of men He was put in charge. He was sent to the Congo. He was, you know, enormously respected. And his point to me was that that was the opportunity, that was the first opportunity he had um, of actually uh, moving into a schedule, being responsible, um, accepting a code of conduct, which was, you know, honorable. Um, you know, being, uh, being be- becoming moral. In other words, he felt that it was the first time he had the mechanics were in place to, uh, to allow him an understanding of what he had done. And in a way that was staggering to me, he decided to give himself up, even though he wasn't... He, he wasn't identified as the murderer of either of these two men. And he gave himself up in France, um, and he was brought back to 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 the UK. He stood trial. Um, he was given a 23-year um, uh, sentence, the first of which was in solitary confinement. He read his way through the only thing. He was given only for that one year, just an hour out of his cell a day, but he was allowed to take out six books a week to read. And keep in mind, this is somebody who never had an education. He ran off when he was eight. He was never in school. Obviously, he was very, you know, certainly uh, in terms of a language, he was quick enough to have picked up French, you know, when he arrived um, to join the Foreign Legion. But, you know, this this man had absolutely nothing. He was given up on. He you know he 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 was not educated he it was just hopeless and again that doesn't justify the murders but he somehow found his way out of just a point of no return by making this moral decision and and that was extremely difficult for me to reconcile that this man who had done these these you know these absolutely unspeakable merciless you know murders that then could actually become a a moral person who made the decision first to give himself up knowing the consequences and then actually then to to become you know to to come to the realization that the only thing he could do was to be the best he could be once he got out and so he is now you know speaking at schools He, he told me that to repeat his story allows him to actually live with it. And he's a trustee on various prison reform, uh, you know, committees in the UK. So, you know, for me, that was the most difficult. It was actually the most dispiriting, but at the same time, it was the most um, inspiring.
0: Eden Collinsworth, my guest, she's the author of Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex and Business. As you tell a story, I think you use the word in in the uh, book of of redemption um, in regards. And in a sense, so that kind of has talks about religion. I mean, uh, in in the old days, that's what religion was supposed to do, right? Uh, Kind of discipline us to be moral. I
1: think what's happened is that the church, I mean, again, this is what I've, uh, uh, this is not my this is my personal perspective, but it's the result of having traveled in, and living outside of my country and, and traveling and then researching, uh, you know, this book. The church, um, you know, it's generational. So, you know, to loop back to my son who's now in his late 20s, he actually even the generation under him, they, they are a generation that even if they, they might be spiritual and they might even be religious – but they think of morality in a very broad sense, so their moral reference points can are not necessarily not coming from one particular source. So they look at you know social media. Um, and they they might think of their own spirituality. They are they are not necessarily um, moved by institutional morality. So. Um, You know the the church is in a kind of constant catch up, Um, and I'm talking about you know the church's organized religion. And and what was interesting for me was during the course of the year that it took me to write the book, uh, uh, Ireland, which is a predominantly Catholic country, was the first country to legalize gay marriage, and it absolutely stunned people, including the church. But you know I looked into who pushed this movement forward. And they were predominantly Catholic. They were not in the church. Well, some of them were. But, and so, you know, uh, it's the same if you think of my, my generation or, or older might question the morality of Edward Snowden. Um, if you talk to anybody under a certain age, they think, in fact, he made the moral choice. It was a courageous and moral choice that he made. Um, and so it's, it, it, a, a great deal of this has to do with um, you know, it's generational, and, um, and and so things have changed. It's it's that simple. It's not that they it's a less of a, less of a morality. It's a different morality, and they feel that it's they're far more flexible than than uh, than I am, frankly.
0: I'm talking with Eden Collinsworth, author of Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex and Business. I do want to talk about sex uh, for a minute. <laughs> Same-sex couples having children. Uh, and You related a, a couple of stories regarding that and and how that is a challenge between uh, generations, I know, within my own family how, and, mm-hmm. and the ethics regarding that. Can you talk just a little bit about that?
1: Yes, yes. Well, you know, it, it, the, again, this is a, a reminder of how quickly – Uh, you know, changes have occurred in the last 20 years. If you look at the issue of fertility, now there are so many more options. Some of them are kind of unbelievable in terms of the options one has now to reproduce. What I I was interested in was the the idea of of not only gay marriage, but, but more to the point how forming a family has changed. And right. um, and what uh, what that constitutes, and so again, if you look at uh, young people in their twenties, how a family is formed, you know, whether somebody is, you know, uh, has been biologically altered in some way, it's you know, you, you've got a donor, you've you know, all of that is slightly academic as opposed to uh, you know uh, their parents' generation where you know, there was a kind of prototype in terms of how you, you form a family. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's just extremely different. Uh, that said, I don't think that there are, they are less good parents or less moral parents. I mean, if you, you have a, you know, a, a, a gay family where, you know, they've either adopted or they've, or, or most to the point now that, that you know, you can, you can orchestrate it where, in fact, you are the biological parent of your own child. I think that what has to be remembered is that that doesn't that it just makes it different. It doesn't make it bad or good. It makes it extremely different from people who have grown up uh, with, with a certain set of parameters. And what was interesting to me was a reminder that the, the word bastard, you know, in my lifetime uh, was... Considered to be, a, uh, f- f- for the obvious reason, considered to be demeaning. And in fact, if you ask somebody today of a certain age, they don't, the literal sense of that word has been lost. I don't think that's so bad, by the way. No, I don't. Um, but,
0: yeah, because I, 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 you mentioned something, the orchestration of birth. I mean, and, and that really is, that's what I was getting at, is that it's it's really new territory that, for example, same-sex couples have to uh, create on their own and find their own ethics and how they're going to do that. And it's complex. And it's um, very,
1: and it's full of, and it also depends upon the legality of uh-huh. where you are. And so what happens, and, the, and this is a genuine concern, and I appreciate it, is that the people People who can afford it, because in fact it's you know it can become extremely expensive, and your insurance isn't covering it. Um, uh, you know you, you can kind of pick and choose your you know they, they call it a you know you you, you design your reproductive opportunities uh, by you know just kind of cherry picking your way through what's available and legal. So, for example, in the UK, it is illegal. To manipulate um, in order to um, uh, to choose one gender over the other. Uh, it isn't in America, and so wealthy people, who, you know, in the UK, come to um, to to the US um, to to increase the chances or or guarantee the chances you have one sex uh, or the other. And so um, it, it, again, it's relative. To where you are, uh, and the legalities, and and most to the point, what you can afford. So it's illegal to 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 freeze your your eggs if you're a woman in China, Um, but the people who can afford it come to California and 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 take care of that um, there. Um, So you know there are a lot of options, some of which you need a kind of flowchart to to follow. I mean, I remember. In L.A. years ago, I was taken back, to say, to say the least. Um, I, I, I knew a couple for 10 years. I, I knew them, both of them individually and, and as a married couple. Uh, I consider them completely, utterly, unquestionably moral and committed to their marriage. But in a very casual way, you know, it became uh, the, the, the the woman um, told me um, that her husband, b- again, both of these were very dear friends, was making himself available um, to, you know, for uh, uh, to a lesbian couple they knew, uh, both of whom wanted to get uh, to get pregnant. There was the understanding that whoever got pregnant first, obviously, then, you know, the other one would kind of step aside for a period of time. And this man, who I knew, um, again, utterly committed to the marriage, was. Making himself available, and I don't. I thought, well, I'm not quite sure how I would feel about that. How would I feel if my husband agreed to 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 inseminate? Um, you know, wh- where there was a child, and so it's it's very personal. And then to make matters even more complicated you know, when I was a year or so later, when I was in LA, this was, you know, LA is always kind of one musical step ahead of, I think, ahead of uh, the rest of, uh, uh, you know, of America, in terms of the trend line. But I was made aware of, I went off to a lunch with a group of people. And it happened that there was a woman who, you know, was, uh, she was a, a lesbian, her, her brother was, was, was gay. They were both in relationships. And so the understanding was her brother would inseminate her lover and she would then be inseminated by his lover or partner. And then they would somehow swap babies. And it was so beyond me. And I thought, well, that was, uh, that's where I got really uncomfortable. I thought, well, it was one thing for somebody to father a child, you know, uh, it was another thing than to swap babies. So, I mean, you, it's all relative. I, I didn't understand where I was supposed to draw the line. It was very, for me, very, um, uh, you know, there was something that was coming from the base of my spine that told me, well, this, I don't mind about this, but this, I, I, I really have got to think twice about.
0: Huh. Yeah. And then you said, but uh, you've also believed that those couples would raise those uh, children uh, whichever one happened with great love and, and, and everything.
1: Uh, unquestionably. And and I mean, you know, I, I'm fairly, de- my facial expression apparently is very demonstrative. So even <laughs> though I'm keeping my thoughts to myself, I gather, you know, my what I was expressing on my face was, you know, complete confusion. And of course, the, the woman who was explaining this, she didn't, she, I suppose, for all the obvious reasons, she became rather defensive. And she said... Do you have a problem with this? And I said, I'm not sure what, whether I've got a problem. But and she said, Well, I, I, it doesn't matter if you have a problem. What you have to understand and accept is that these babies, no matter how they're brought up or with whom, they will be loved unquestionably. And and I and I, I absolutely believe that. That the so, perhaps that's the most important thing.
0: Well, that's the challenge. What is the most yes. important thing? How do we decide in the end? And and a lot of it just is is what is outcome i guess as uh, the behavior well, is... is
1: but but I, I i i mean i must say the one the challenge and the inspiration and it will become more and more of a challenge mm-hmm. the the fact is that regardless of what politicians promise and it's not just in this country i've seen it in europe in and now in the uk i've seen it now it's very much a, a global you know issue the, there is a churn of humanity that will not diminish. That is our world now. And so if you take, for example, the mayor of London, the current mayor of London, he is the son of a Pakistani London bus driver. He was asked to explain himself or describe himself. I I was just staggered by the simplicity of it. So he explained that he was a Londoner, that he was a European, that he was British, that he was English, that he was of Islamic faith. He was of Asian origin, and he was of Pakistani heritage, and he was a father, and he was a husband. He was all of those things, uh, genuinely speaking. I mean, he had all of those threads connecting to and that is more and more that will be the world you you cannot somehow think that that's not happening and you cannot keep that in one place two or three weeks ago there was this horrific um attack in you know terrorist attack on on the westminster bridge and you know the londoners were not um they were not surprised because, you know, we've all seen what's happened in Europe and their far more deadly attacks. But they were shocked, and they and and of course, it's shocking. It's so haphazard and, and awful and and shocking. And and it, it happened just before three o'clock. And by five thirty, which is the beginning of their rush hour, um, the Arts Fund put up immediately. They went to the largest, the busiest tube stations. And above turnstiles, they put up an enormous sign that you couldn't help but see. Regardless, I mean, everyone was trying to get home. It was a very upsetting day. And I must say, many times now in the last year, certainly since the election, I've been on the uh, subway in New York. And and to my horror, I, you know, you are hearing racial you know, there's confrontation and racial slurs. And, you, you know, I mean, New York people are always from some other place. So this is all fairly recent. And, and it's not just in America, New York, it's elsewhere, where, you you know, you get you're standing cheek by jowl and, and you lash out at somebody who's wearing a headscarf or whatever. And um, so this sign read, it was very simple. It was two words in a comma and two more words. And it was not them, only us. And what that did was not only galvanize people, but it held them to moral account. So they were going to get on that crowded subway and they were going to think twice about lashing out at somebody who was Muslim or, you know, from some other place. And I think that's probably what, that's what we need to do with each other is to hold our, ourselves and other people to account.
0: Yes, I I think that there's a sense in which perhaps morality may be emergent um, in, all, yes. in all of our interactions, that uh, that we may surprise ourselves, uh, who knows, negatively or positively, but uh, yes. I, I, I'm hoping positively that uh, yes. a new morality may emerge that even binds us uh, to the whatever, we'll, however, the, what the metaphor I can use, uh, a standard yes, behavior. Yes,
1: yes. well, I, I, I agree with you, and that is... That's my hope. After a year of having searched for modern morality, that is certainly my hope.
0: Eden Collinsworth, thank you so much for being with me. A very important, um, uh, thoughtful and thought-inspiring book, Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business. Thank you so much for being with me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I very much appreciate it.
0: Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. 60 Minutes of Smart. Progressive Spirit is now in its sixth year and is now an hour long. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and the Pacifica Radio Network. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on podcast, hear it on your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear and listen on iTunes or Stitcher or any app that has a place for a review, please leave one. More reviews help the show get a wider audience. If you have ideas for guests or would like to comment on an episode, contact me through my website, ProgressiveSpirit.com net. You can comment on Facebook and retweet on Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shack. Be well.